You're listening to the Kunzercast, featuring James Howard Kunzler, author of Too Much Magic, The Long Emergency, and The World Made by Hand Novel. Hello, and welcome to the Kunzler Cast. Thanks for listening in. I've been twanging on the oil theme lately because our wishful thinking about it has become so extreme, and it's an enormous obstacle for this society in forming a coherent consensus about what's happening to us and our ability to act intelligently in the face of what is happening to us. Namely, to prepare for a future that will be very different from the way we live today, and an economy that will be very different. My guest this week is independent petroleum geologist Jeffrey Brown, who's based in Dallas, Texas. Jeff has been a contributor to the oildrum.com website for many years, and he's originated a set of very important models for understanding the global oil export and import scene. And just to be clear about it, we are the importers, uh, that is the USA, uh, but also countries like China and then the nations of Europe, and countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, Russia, etc., they are the exporters. So understanding this basic equation is crucial to becoming energy literate. Jeff and I will also talk about the shale oil scene, and in particular, the economic and practical differences between shale and conventional oil uh, in terms of how much it costs to get it out of the ground and what that means. I first met Jeff Brown about 10 years ago when he kindly arranged a speaking gig for me at Southern Methodist University jointly with the late Matthew Simmons. His observations about the oil scene have have high value, and here's my conversation with him. describe your position in the industry exactly? Primarily an uh, independent petroleum geologist, and I manage a uh, small exploration program. Uh, what, are you, what, what, what kind of exploration do you do? We're looking for uh, conventional fields at shallow depths in west uh, central Texas. Are these going to be small fields? Certainly by uh, world standards, we don't even uh, arrive at rounding error status. Uh, you know, a one to five million barrel field would be a very large discovery for us, but, you know, just provide a, you know, hour or two or a couple hours of uh, oil for the global, <laughs> global demand. From what I remember about talking to you a few years ago, back in Dallas, you also operated uh, at that time what used to be called stripper wells. And explain to the listeners what a stripper well is. Uh, It's usually defined as 10 barrels a day or less, and the bulk of U.S. oil production still comes from wells that are plus or minus uh, stripper status, 10 barrels a day. And I think the Average production in Texas has gone up recently from about six barrels a day to maybe seven to eight. So basically, with this, with this with a stripper well, you, you know, you've already drilled the well, you got the pump jack in place, and you just turn the electricity on, 
and the oil sort of dribbles out at, you know, you're making maybe what, uh, you know, eight hundred thousand dollars a day. Oh yeah, eight, yeah, eight to ten barrels uh, oil um, per day, and it, it's. Uh, of course, you know that's only really practical on the onshore uh, basis. You sure. know, the offshore operating costs are so high that you know, it's really get in there, get the oil out as fast as possible, and as soon as operating costs you know equal revenue, you shut down. Well, I want to um, warn the listeners that th- there are no two personalities in the whole realm of of the peak oil discussion who are as come from as different a point of view as you and I do. Uh, in terms of how our brains work, you are very mathematically oriented and and statistical analysis oriented, and I'm more of a storyteller with a, kind of a math phobia. And so, in our communications over the last ten years, which have been quite a bit, um, we we frequently uh, clash over my inability to understand what you're saying in numbers. So we're going to try to make it possible for listeners who also may be math-challenged to understand how some of this stuff works um, by, by translating the numbers into a story, okay? We'll, we'll try. <laughs> and your, your special domain in the larger oil discussion has been the whole issue of the exporting nations and, uh, and what that means to how we run our stuff. You called your theory the export land model. And again, for listeners to understand, it's not about exporting land. It's about exporting nations. That, that means when we talk about export lands, we mean the nations that export oil, correct? Correct. And in 2005, I started asking the question, you know, what happens to oil exports when production declines in an exporting country, but consumption stays about the same or continues to increase. And so I just simply developed a simple mathematical model and I assumed that production went up about 5% per year, hit a peak, and then fell at 5% per year, which is about the decline rate we've seen in the North Sea, which is, is offshore province, and it's higher than a lot of what we see on, in onshore areas. But I wanted to try to force the situation and just show, a, you know, kind of a sharp demarcation line. And then I simply assumed consumption you know, continued to increase at, at about 2.5% per year over the whole time period. The important part of this equation is whether the nations that send oil to us, the importers, can continue to send it to us at the rate that we need to get it, right? In a typical production decline situation, you lose about two to, say, five percent per year. doesn't sound like Uh, much, but it adds up. But the problem is, when you plug in the rising consumption, it's not a steady, you know, two percent, two percent, two percent, two percent. The decline rate tends to accelerate, and it goes maybe two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen percent. And, you know, that's what the model predicted. And when you look at various case histories of, of countries like UK, Indonesia, uh, Egypt that have become net importers from an exporter status or have approached zero net oil exports, they're showing exactly what the model predicted. So let, I, I phrased it this way. Imagine you're in a commercial airliner doing a gradual descent for landing. You know, that's like a kind of a typical simple production decline. A net export decline would be you're on this commercial airliner and the pilot is pushing the stick forward and you're going into an ever steepening dive toward the ground. 
And basically that's what's happened after 2005. Uh, we've seen a material decline in global net oil exports. Uh, we're down a couple of million barrels or so from 2005, despite a doubling in crude oil prices. Primarily because the exporting countries are consuming more of their oil, so the more they consume, the less they have to uh, export. What What are some of the uh, ranges of their their consumption increases in recent years? So we get a picture of how much more they're using, for example, in Saudi Arabia than was the case 10 years ago, something like that. Yeah, Saudi, Saudi Arabia is probably the world champion right now in terms of uh, uh, rate of increase in consumption. I think they're up at about 6 to 7% per year from 2005 to 2012. Is that 6 to 7% annually? Annually. Each year. And, and, uh, Each year. What does that leave them in the way of uh, oil to export in the future? Well, the, uh, I've got a little different mathematical model I won't get into, but we, we just basically kind of project some rates of declines and ratios. But what it suggests is that sometime at the current, if we, we extrapolate the current trends, sometime in the oh, you know, next 20 years or so, Saudi Arabia will approach uh, zero net oil exports. What are some of the other uh, exporting nations that we depend on to get our oil, and, and what condition are they in? The, uh, I first started looking at the exporters and uh, focused on the top three at the time in 2005, which was Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Norway. And they accounted for about 40% of global net exports in uh, 2005. But if you look at the sum total of those three countries, they exported uh, a little less than 19 million barrels a day in 2005, and they were down to 17.3 in 2012. And Russia uh, has stagnated since 2007. Their net exports have been flat down uh, since 2007. Uh, Saudi Arabia's have been below their 2005 rate for seven straight years, and Norway has been a, in a long-term uh, decline. Their net exports are down to about 1.6 million in 2012 versus 3.1 in 2002. So, you know, those are the those three countries accounted for 40 percent of global net exports in uh, 2005, and they're illustrative of uh, what's going on in the market right now. Are they are they not also illustrative of what's going on in uh, geopolitics? Because, you know, it's it's one thing for us to talk about. The production numbers and the export numbers, it's another thing to understand what's happening on the ground in, in some of these nations, which uh, are very unstable nations in unstable regions of the world. Well, that's certainly affecting some other countries. Of course, Libya uh, is, a, is a prime example uh, where their exports have been uh, adversely affected by the, the uh, uh, revolution. Um, yeah, you know, their you know export production exports did rebound, but I just saw some recent data showing they're down four or five hundred thousand barrels again uh, this year. And of course, it's you know the uh, uh, restrictions on Iran have had an impact on their uh, oil exports. But the uh, fundamental thing driving the situation is you know simply the geology and uh, increase in consumption. There are a lot of people who believed that once we once we enabled Iraq to become sta politically stable, that uh, they would uh, add millions of barrels a day 
to global oil production, um, but it doesn't seem to be panning out quite the way they imagined. Uh, what, what's your view of that? Yeah, I'm, I was definitely been in the uh, uh, more conservative camp on Iraq, and especially from a net export point of view, because their consumption is on a pretty rapid uptick, and they were, I think they hit uh, about 1.8 million barrels a day in 2008 net exports, and they're up uh, at 2.2 .2 in 2012. So their net exports are going up at about 100,000 barrels per day. It's less than their production increase, but their consumption is, is consuming uh, a growing share of production. Uh, my impression is that a lot of the Western oil, major oil corporations, didn't particularly want to get involved in Iraq either. Yes, their uh, proposed contract terms, I think, are pretty tough. I think uh, a lot of uh, Western countries have uh, passed on it. But so they're kind of stuck with their their decrepit uh, Iraqi oil infrastructure. There, you know, there, there are certainly some, you know, some service companies and some majors in there uh, working uh, to try to raise production. But at the end of the day, uh, I just don't see that it's going to make a material difference. And in fact, I did a little exercise. Uh, Brazil is you know, a country that in years past has been mentioned as one of the leading uh, suppliers of crude, especially in the Western Hemisphere. But even if you include ethanol in the calculations, Brazil, for the past couple of years, has been a net liquids importer. If you subtract out ethanol, they're a really big net petroleum importer. But if you, even if we count ethanol and, and look at Iraq plus Brazil combined and extrapolate the recent data, mm -hmm. in 20 years, Brazil and Iraq combined would be approaching zero net oil exports. Um, let's talk about the picture uh, for conventional oil in the USA. What is the depletion picture like in the uh, lower 48 I think the, you know, the the key word is the decline rate, and uh, the best way to explain that is, let's assume you think of all the oil wells in the United States in 2012, and then assume from January 1st, 2013 to December 31st, 2013, we didn't put a single oil well online. So then how much would production decline uh, in 2013 versus 2012, looking at average annual? So that would that would be the decline rate. That would be the decline rate from existing production. Now, ExxonMobil, a few years ago, estimated global production is declining about four to six percent per year. So let's call it five percent per year around 2008 for the U.S. Now these shale Titan shale wells that they're putting on have extraordinarily high decline rates. But you know, a good deal of the production is produced in the first year, and they drop off dramatically from the first year to second year. So I think a conservative estimate is that the current decline rate is probably at least 10% per year from existing wells and increasing with time as a higher percentage of total production comes from the tight and the shale plays. So that 10% that a year includes the, all the action with the, the shale plays? Correct. That would be the overall estimated decline rate, which is probably conservative. Now, I partly chose that because the number works out when you look at a 10-year you know, period. 
so you know, for the sake of you know, we we were doing uh, five million barrels a day crude oil, which EIA defines crude plus condensate in 2008. And for the sake of argument, let's say we hit seven and a half this year. Well, what would at a 10% decline rate, we would have to put online 750,000 barrels per day per year every year. So over a 10-year period, 750,000 barrels times 10 is 7.5 million barrels. At a 10% decline rate over 10 years, we have to replace every single oil field in the United States. We'd have to put online the productive equivalent of everything from Thunder Harsh in the Gulf of Mexico to the Eagle Ford to the Permian Basin to the Bakken to the North Slope of Alaska and everything east and west and in between. We have to replace 100% of the productive equivalent of every single oil field in 10 years. What is the situation uh, in the offshore uh, in the Gulf of Mexico? uh, Interestingly enough, I was just reading an email from an analyst, and uh, for example, he said that ExxonMobil does not have a single major project coming online in the Gulf of Mexico until 2020. And a lot of these fields, like Thunder Horse, or or, uh, deepwater fields, are showing extremely high decline rates. Basically, the Thunder Horse field, the original discovery, is crashing. It's a... I haven't looked at the latest numbers, but I believe it's down by at least 50 to 60% from its production peak. Basically, as soon as it peaked, it started declining. And I don't think they're going to make anything like what uh, you know, BP initially estimated for recoverable reserves. But it's a contribution. But basically, these deep water fields are showing a kind of decline rates that are, much, that are similar to what we're seeing on these onshore uh, shale plays. What about Alaska? Well, it's helpful, but they're in long-term decline. And, and what's, uh, what's the decline uh, profile like for the uh, Prudhoe Bay fields? I believe the North Slope fields are currently declining around uh, 5 to 6% uh, percent per year. There's some idea that if the rate of flow coming out of the Prudhoe Bay fields gets too low, the Alaska pipeline as currently configured won't work very well because the the oil has to say stay warm enough to make the journey uh, from the the top of Alaska to the bottom without turning into thick sludge. Correct. Yeah, I've read some conflicted numbers on it. Anywhere from uh, I think two hundred to four hundred thousand barrels per day. But of course, you know they're going to uh, pull every uh, rabbit out of the hat that they can uh, to try to keep the uh, pipeline in operation. What, but, so what is the cutoff uh, line for for the flow? I suspect it's probably going to turn out to be somewhere around the hundred to 200,000 barrel per day mark. After which they simply won't be able to move the stuff out of uh, northern Alaska. Correct. Um, Mexico. Mexico used to be America's number three uh, source of oil imports. And there was a lot of talk around 2005 about the depletion of the Cantorell field. And that's kind of fallen off the, the radar screen. What's the situation down in Mexico with the uh, oil fields off the Yucatan? I think it's the, the onshore uh, stuff has been disappointing. And there are uh, other principal uh, offshore field, which is abbreviated uh, KMZ, I think, uh, has made up part of the slack from uh, Cantorell. However, uh, Mexico's uh, net exports are, have uh, fallen uh, uh, precipitously. I believe they were at about 
million barrels a day in 2004 in net exports, and they're down to less than, uh, you know, they're down to 700,000 barrels in uh, 2012. So basically, yeah, they went from about 1.8 to 0.7. So they've dropped about 1.1 million barrels a day. If you extrapolate the the decline uh, and using the ratio that I, I use, it's I think they've probably got less than somewhere around eight to ten years before they approach zero net oil exports. And where are they uh, in domestic production? Because it's a it's a country with a fairly large population and a fairly fast-growing population. They're, well, the production peaked at total petroleum liquids at 3.8 million barrels a day in 2004. They're down to 2.9 in 2012. And their consumption in 2004 went from 2.1 million barrels a day to about 2.2. So the, co- the consumption has not uh, increased appreciably, but the the problem with what I call the you know the export land model or what I call net export math is that given a production decline, unless that exporting country cuts their consumption at the same rate that production falls or at a faster rate, the net export decline rate is going to exceed the production decline rate. It means net exports fall faster than production, and the net export decline rate will accelerate with time. You know that's not a an opinion. It's it's a you know verified mathematical fact. And Mexico is a prime case. You know they've shown a slight increase in consumption, but their production uh, has fallen uh, you know, considerably. And so they've shown a far larger increase, a far larger decline in net exports percentage-wise than in production. And it's, it's a classic example of net export math. And translate that for the listeners about what it means on the ground for the, for, uh, the Mexican economy, for the Mexican government, for the people in Mexico. Mexico is a surprising case history. They've, uh, you know, despite all the... Uh, headwinds that they've had, I think the Mexican economy is actually doing fairly well of late, which is a big surprise. However, as I go further along the net export decline and uh, lose more and more export revenue, that they may have uh, increasing trouble uh, keeping the economy going at their current level. The export picture, that is, uh, the nations that send oil to us, the import importers, h- how would you sum up what this means for us? Well, the other aspect, uh, it's just not the slow decline in net exports we've seen since 2005. Uh, so far, we've also seen the developing countries, led by China, consuming an, an increasing share. And I've got a term, what I call available net oil exports. And that would be the volume of oil available to roughly 155 net oil importing countries, which would be the importers other than China and India. Well, that volume was around 41 million barrels a day in 2005, and it was down to 37 million barrels a day in 2012. So it was dropping the volume of oil available to uh, importers other than China and India has dropped on average a million barrels a day per year for seven years. So the world is competing yeah. for, for an ever-shrinking uh, pool of available export oil. Well, and so far, the, the exporters and the developing countries have been immune to the double-digit average rate of increase in global oil prices from 2002 to 12. 
Now, that may be changing. We've seen some recent signs of weakness in China. On the other hand, their production has plateaued uh, in both, uh, looks like China and India. So if their production stopped increasing, that's going to uh, increase the demand for imports, even if their consumption is falling or stagnating. What's the oil production picture in China like now? Last time I checked, it was about 22 billion barrels. On a flow rate basis, the past couple of years, they've been flat. And so when that happened to the U.S. in 1970, it, it caused a very sharp increase in our net imports. So even if China's rate of increase in consumption may be slowing, if their, demand, if their production is stagnated, which it has, and it may be declining, that's going to have an adverse effect on the, the you know, demand for it. It's going to increase the demand for import, Chinese imports. But the, the bottom line, the macro picture for the post in the post-2005 period, the bottom line for the U.S. and other developed net oil importing countries is that we've had to get by on a declining share of a declining post-2005 volume of global net oil exports. So the developing countries have been consuming an increasing share of a declining volume, which basically means what we're seeing is price rationing, where the developed oil-importing countries like the U.S. have been forced to reduce our consumption to make room for the developing countries. Now, everybody's you know, going berserk over this increase in U.S. crude oil production while not looking at these huge decline rates that we're going to have to fight. And what we're seeing is probably an undulating decline in U.S. crude oil production because we're, we're still around, you know, more than 20 percent below our 1970 crude oil production peak. So what we're seeing is rising and falling production in the U.S. below our absolute 1970 production peak. So I call it an undulating decline. You know, we're probably we're low sevens right now, so seven to seven three million barrels a day. The peak was nine point six million barrels a day, crude condensate in nineteen seventy. Let's talk about shale for a minute. Um, th there are a lot of people out there who think that uh, uh, shale oil is going to offset all of these other problems that we face from domestic decline and and declining uh, available imports. What do you think about that? It's hopeful, but I think vastly overrated. You know, you have to get into a little bit of a math uh, uh, situation again, but it's it's pretty simple math. But, you know, let's assume at a 5% decline rate and 5 million barrels a day, 5% of 5 million is 250,000 barrels per day. So if you wanted to maintain 5 million barrels a day, you got to add 250,000 barrels a day every year. Well, if you double that and you're you're producing 10 and losing... 5% every year, you're, you have to add twice as much. 5% of 5 is, is uh, 250,000 barrels a day. 5% of 10 million would be 500,000 barrels a day. So as production's gone up, even if with a constant decline rate, we need more oil to maintain a given rate. But the other problem is the decline rates are going up because these uh, shale plays have such astronomical production decline rates. So I think it's a reasonable estimate is we might have been losing 250,000 barrels a day per year in 2008 to production declines. It's entirely possible that that's at least tripled, and we're losing 750,000 barrels a day per year every single year. 
So it's probably we need probably need three times as much oil to maintain our current production level, new oil, as we did in 2008. And in a nutshell, that's why production peaks. At some point in time, it's a mathematical certainty that you can no longer offset the declines from existing wells. It's not a, a if situation, it's when. Explain to the listeners the difference between uh, a shale oil well and a conventional, let's say, a Texas oil well from back in the glory days. Probably the premier example might be the East Texas oil field. Um, it was found in 1930. Uh, it was so prolific that at the peak production rate, I think, of over a million barrels a day in the 30s, it, it would meet about one-fifth of total world demand at the time. And it drove the price of oil in East Texas down to around 10 cents a barrel in the local markets. Now, the field was found in 1930, and in the 70s, the wells on the east te- east side of the East Texas oil field, where you're high, would probably produce virtually the same amount of oil in 1970 that they would have produced in 1930. How many barrels a day was that? Thousands of barrels per day. And I've read that the average production of a Bakken shale oil well is about 82 barrels a day. And falling. The, you know, the average is uh, continuing uh, to uh, decline. So that's not a and, whole lot better than a stripper well. Well, and I think the best way to characterize the shale plays is, I think a reasonable estimate is that 10 years from now, 90% of the shale wells will either be plugged or abandoned or down to 10 barrels a day or less. You may have some outliers in the other 10%, but I think 90% will be completely gone are down to 10 barrels a day or less. Okay, now explain the difference between the actual mechanical process of drilling and uh, recovering oil from a shale oil well and the process of drilling a, an East Texas oil well. Well, the East Texas field has uh, you know, fabulous what we call porosity and permeability. So porosity is the holes in the rock, and permeability is a measure of how well those holes are connected. So all they had to do in the East Texas field is they just ran a cement around a steel casing, they cemented it, they'd perforate it, and the thing would kick off flowing thousands of barrels of oil per day. And the, the field, in fact, was so prolific that the uh, Texas government had to step in via the Railroad Commission in the 30s and control the uh, production, which is a story in and of itself. It was the beginning of the proration rules because the wells are so prolific. They had they were destroying the market for oil. So the, the basic idea is uh, in an East Texas oil well of the classic type, you're basically just sticking a straw on the ground and stuff is coming up under huge pressure in immense amounts. Correct. Now these uh, shell plays are you know just tiny, tiny nano you know porosity situations. Or, uh, well, uh, technically, it actually have, tends to have high porosity, but the problem is permeability. The, you know, it's just nano Darcy's of permeability. is extremely tight. Explain what and that means to the listeners. Imagine what a you know, sponge looks like versus concrete. The difference between a sponge and a brick? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the East Texas, uh, the woodbine sandstone is just uh, extremely... It's got lots of holes that are extremely well connected. The question is, how well are the pore spaces uh, connected? And that's what you know how we measure you know the permeability. 
and it's just you know the shale just have you know almost no permeability. In other words, the oil is trapped in the rock. Yes, and where and where the oil comes from are naturally occurring fractures that are augmented by these monstrous multi-stage frac jobs, and so they drill hard. The fractures tend to be vertical. And so they drill the horizontal wells into these multi-stage, uh, gigantic frac jobs and try to open up as many fractures as they can, naturally and otherwise, and connect them with the, the fracture program. And you, you do have these extremely high flow rates. But whereas you know, the you know the good well on the east side of the East Texas field produced basically as much oil in 1970 as it did in 1930, uh, these shale wells start declining at a rapid rate almost from the first day you put them online. And as I said, I would estimate that 90% of currently producing shale wells are going to be stripper well status or plugged and abandoned 10 years later. And uh, they actually uh, lose, on average, something like 60% of their production in the first year. Yes, and that, you know the, one of the raging arguments is you know whether it, you're going to see what you call exponential or hyperbolic decline. It, it's simply a question: is does the decline tend to flatten out with time, or does it tend to, uh, you know, to uh, fall at a you know given rate all the way to the economic limit? Explain to the listeners what the difference in capital investment is for each type of uh, procedure. Well, I think the uh, memory serves the depth of East Texas Field. I think is around 35. 100 feet, 4,000 feet, something like that. So, drilled and completed, you could probably drill one of these these days for three or four hundred thousand, probably not more than five hundred thousand dollars. These shale wells typically are, uh, depending on the area and depth, running completed something like seven to over ten million dollars. So it's a you know huge difference in uh, capital cost. I've heard people discuss the possibility that the high, uh, the high price of oil as we go forward will actually have a feedback effect on the ability to raise the necessary capital investment to perform the shale recovery operations. Well, I think what, what's happening right now is that costs have been going up at uh, over 10% per year, and we've basically had high but stagnant oil prices for going on a Two years now, and actually down somewhat in 2013. So what we may be seeing is something of a uh, problem with the price floor that oil companies require to maintain the current rate of drilling in the shale plays versus the price ceiling that supports aggregate consumption at current levels. Well, actually, the um, the price of oil has been in a fairly narrow range for quite a while now, basically between eighty and a hundred dollars a barrel, and and uh, that whole range is really above the level that many people believe our economy can withstand in in terms of just the general price of oil to run that economy. So, yeah, it the. the there are probably there are three different. I think there are the three sectors on the demand situation. There's the developed countries, which and you know we've not been able to afford the price since 2005, and we've been been gradually forced to reduce our consumption. And then the developing countries, which so far through 2012 are roughly immune to the high prices. And, then and why, why are they immune? 
It's a very interesting question, and, and, and frankly, it surprised me. It's not what I expected to see a few years ago. Uh, I think it's primarily because they're, you know, they're starting from a, much, such a lower level of consumption that uh, probably the simplest way to put it is they've got a far smaller discretionary economy than we do. So it's much more non-discretionary and developing and growing versus our very high percentage of our economy, which is transfer payments and discretionary spending. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, the, and their per capita consumption is so low. And one way to compare uh, petroleum use is, you know, imagine a uh, realtor in North Dallas here in Texas who wants to buy petroleum to drive his SUV around to show people McMansions in the outer suburbs versus a farmer somewhere in India that wants to buy some petroleum to run his uh, diesel generator to run his pumps to irrigate his fields. You know, which of the two is you know, putting uh, uh, petroleum to more productive purposes? And in a nutshell, I think that kind of <laughs> summarizes the uh, differences to, between the two economies. But the the fact is, I mean, the China's consumption basically doubled from 2000, or their their oil consumption basically doubled from 2002 to 2012 as global oil prices quadrupled. Oil prices went from 25 and Brent, average Brent price 25 in 2002 went to 112 in 2012. But their you know over that time period their consumption doubled. Our consumption in 2012 was well below our 2005 level, and in fact was below the 2002 level. So it's the developed countries have been forced to reduce consumption. The developing countries are increasing. And then the, the aggregate demand is a sum of those two. It's developed plus developing. Now, we, what I think we are beginning to see is those prices are finally having an impact to some degree on the developing countries. Well, it's certainly affecting, I think, the banking system. And we, we might ask ourselves what they have been doing with that oil and you know as far as china goes uh, part of the answer part of the answer is that they've been building empty shopping malls and empty real estate developments and um as a result their banking system seems to be imploding even as we speak today on the 24th of june i'm uh, i've done a little extrapolation and i've got a little ratio which is uh global net oil exports divided by China and India's net imports, and around numbers, that ratio is like 12 to 1 in 2002. So for every barrel that China and India net imported, there were 12 barrels of global net exports. In 2012, that was down to 5. For every barrel that it imported, there are only 5 barrels of uh, global net exports. Uh, you could turn that around and basically say that China and India's imports as a percentage of exports doubled in 10 years. But anyway, if you extrapolate those trends, in 17 years, China and India would theoretically consume 100% of global net exports, leaving nothing for 155 net oil importers. Now, it's not going to happen. You know, the only question was, how is it not going to happen? Well, it looks like the way it's not going to happen is that uh, the global financial system is going to crack up because it's the most fragile of all the complex systems that we depend on for everyday life. Well, and another aspect of the net export situation, which is probably the scariest of all uh, of all of them, is de- depletion. And 
think of the total volume of global oil that will be shipped after 2005. But if you run those the, those depletion numbers, cumulative net export depletion numbers after 2005, they're horrifically scary. And so my thesis is that most financial assets are mispriced. Uh, most stock and bond prices are not are, – our values are mispriced because we're not going to have the volume of exportable oil necessary to generate the economic activity that the stock, stock and bond markets are anticipating. Well, interestingly, uh, I think the actions of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and, and other authorities um, – to manipulate and uh, intervene and offset that problem has only created worse mispricing of financial assets. Correct. And, you know, the fundamental shift we're seeing, I think, is that we're transitioning from an economy focused on meeting wants to one focused on meeting needs. But the Net oil importing OECD countries are desperately trying to maintain their wants-based economies through borrowing from real creditors and accommodative central bankers. And so we've seen this. If you, I've got a chart that shows a total increase of public debt versus a decline in this ratio of global net exports to China and India's net imports, and they're absolutely an inverse situation. Global Debt's going up at a 45-year angle up, left to right, and the ratio of net exports to China and India's imports is going down at a 45-year angle, left to right. So these oil-importing OECD countries are basically borrowing you know, from central bankers and from real creditors trying to keep their wants-based economies going, even as that's really no longer feasible or possible. I've got really two more questions for you. Um, the first one is, um, the first one is based on the fact that the Atlantic magazine published a cover story last month saying we'll never run out of oil, and um, it, that seemed to kind of reflect a general kind of delusional thinking that is abroad all over America, and it pops up in other places too, in stories in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And the question really is, how did these supposed gatekeepers of intelligent discourse get so snookered by this uh, story? It's an it's, uh, interesting question. I mean, the math, the math is maybe hard for me to understand because I'm a math moron, but it's not really that difficult. I think it's, the, uh, it's probably the triumph of what you would call magical thinking. And I think that they want it to be true so hard that they're – it's – another analogy I've used is from the movie The Sixth Sense from a few years ago where the kids could see ghosts. Well, in the movie, the theme was that some ghosts didn't know they were dead, and they only saw what they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for after 2005, the, our, as you would put it, you know, the auto-centric suburban way of life is dead – but I think most Americans don't know it yet, and we only see what we want to see. And it may be as simple as the, you know, that Upton Sinclair quote about difficulty of convincing someone you know, when their job is dependent on them not understanding what you're trying to say. You know, if, if you're in an advertising-driven you know, situation, uh, you just don't want to hear you know, that the party's coming to an end. 
Well, it's funny because um, what you just said kind of leads to my final question, which is you live in Dallas, Texas, correct? Right. And Dallas... Well, actually, we moved to Fort Worth, but Dallas-Fort Worth. Okay, it's the same metropolitan area. Correct. And uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is one of the uh, poster poster boys for suburban sprawl in America. What, what do you see... Um, happening uh, in your in the region that you live in, in terms of people uh, adjusting to the idea that suburban sprawl may not be possible as a as a living arrangement anymore, or is Dallas Fort Worth just kind of blindly sleepwalking into the future? I think you you know occasionally read uh, about. Uh, pockets of you know rational thinking, and there are you know few abortive uh, or, or few small efforts at new urbanism. Uh, yeah, but it, it's it's basically kind of a rounding error as in the uh, as the metroplex expands. And I think in assuming round numbers, I believe in the past two three years, like a quarter million people have moved into the Dallas Fort Worth area. And the, like a lot of the other parts of the country, the actually the local real estate market is booming right now. You know, houses are selling basically, as, or were selling. It may be changing with interest rates going up, but they were selling at least as fast as they could come on the market. And a lot of subdivisions that have been kind of half-finished uh, and curtailed development in no way are now fin- being finished out, and you know, developers are breaking new ground. So... It's you know there there are a few hints of rational thinking, a few efforts at new urbanism developments, you know some committed efforts to try to get some rail transport in, but it's overwhelmed by the tsunami of you know the ever outward expansion of uh, continued uh, suburban development. Does it make you queasy to see it? Yes, uh, you know I, I've tried to follow my own advice. I've got a home office now, so I've reduced my commute from. 20 minutes to about 20 steps, and, uh, and I'm, I'm remaining in the oil business, so I'm a net energy producer, but the, <laughs> I just uh, remain somewhat of a uh, amazed and somewhat frustrated observer looking at, you know, what's um, unfolding around us. But uh, oddly enough, it's, you know, what uh, may curtail development more than anything else in the short run may be uh, water supplies. Are you referring to the water supplies to the Eagle Ford shale play? No, just the, the total. You know, of course, that's you know may have a you know, probably have an impact on South Texas, but just the uh, total uh, water situation in the U.S. I mean, in, in the Southwest and Texas specifically is. Mm-hmm. You know, Western writer Elmer Kelton said that West Texas is in a state of permanent drought, broken occasionally by rainfall. And that's true, really, of the whole American Southwest. You know, everything, really, everything from I-35 West uh, is could be characterized as you know, in a state of permanent drought, broken occasionally by rainfall, especially as the climate appears to be getting a little more uh, chaotic. But there were parts of Texas in the 1950s drought that became uninhabitable because of a lack of water, and people simply had to move away. Now, our population density now is vastly greater, and per capita consumption is vastly greater than it was in the 50s. So we don't have to have a 50s drought to have the same kind of impact on areas, population areas, that you know they're no longer uh, habitable because of a lack of water. What conclusions do you have about 
the future of American society generally based on what you work on? It's. I think we're probably going to do better than a lot of other countries because of our uh, local food situation, and at least we do have probably at least a somewhat stable domestic oil supply. Uh, I think we're going to have a great deal of trouble maintain, even maintaining current production indefinitely, let alone ever becoming uh, crude oil self-sufficient. But I think we're going to probably have a, at least a strong domestic oil and gas supply for quite a while, and, and uh, even more importantly, local food production. But the problem is that I think the shale plays should be viewed as a transition to a less oil-dependent future uh, in a denser new urbanism-type living arrangement you know, along electrified mass transit lines. That's what we should be transitioning to. Instead, it's being sold as a way to have an infinite increase in our consumption of a finite fossil fuel resource base. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for being on the podcast, and uh, I'd like to invite you to come back on when, uh, you know, in a few months when, when we have more to talk about, and things, sure. things will be changing, certainly, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Sure. You've been listening to the Concertcast featuring James Howard Kunstler. Send email to jim at concertcast.com. You can interact with other listeners, hear previous episodes, and find out more about this podcast at concertcast.com. <laughs>